0: It's quite resilient fight with wit and right this real shit volatility low civility don't let vulnerability lower your agility this moment is pivotal crucial critical our opponent is intentional brutally criminal to be truthful our response has been useful and pitiful community defense happens when we control the city though perversity
1: Hello, welcome back to Concrete Milkshake, the Pop Mob podcast. I'm Effie Baum, one of the hosts and a longtime member of Pop Mob, as our spokesperson since the beginning. And we're doing something a little different this time. Our next several episodes, we are very excited to share with you all, include interviews with a lot of local activists and some national journalists, all of whom have one thing in common, which is that they have been targeted by the menace that is Andy No. We have some great conversations about the ethics of journalism and the human impact that his campaigns of hate have had on so many different people especially personally coming at this as somebody who has also been targeted and an organization that's been targeted by him as well this was something that we felt was really important to talk about it's not going to be a personal profile on andy no for that you can check out the behind the bastards episode which does a great job at that but instead we've got some really great conversations set up that we are very excited to share with you Alright, today we are also super stoked to be joined by Talia Levin, the author of the recent book Culture Warlords, who is also a freelance writer who has had bylines in The New Yorker, Washington Post, The New Republic, and is also a wonderful person to follow on Twitter, which is actually where I first discovered you. And we are really, really happy to have you here joining us today. So thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. I just
2: post, you know, Sword picks and asinine political <laughs> picks. But people seem to like it. We love yeah, it. Yeah,
3: I, I came for the politics, but I stayed for the sword picks, definitely. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Speaking of culture warlords, um, I read it in like almost one sitting. It was absolutely fantastic. Thank you for writing it. But yeah, in the book you mentioned that by the time you started writing, you had already had relatives doxxed, your parents were being harassed, and you were fucking pissed understandably and you wanted to show the world how it is that these people think we were sort of wondering how you got there when did you first get into researching white nationalists and what exactly inspired their fixation on you
2: yeah well first of all thank you for reading and i appreciate the fact that that you found something in it because it's definitely more written for like uh normies i would say like kind of an intro to the horrors of the far right um, and I know you guys are seasoned kind of warriors of of light against those folks in the street. So I'm glad you found something of use in it. Oh yeah. I so the the like long and short answer is I f- wrote my first piece about the far right in 2017, and I was writing about the struggle of the Daily Stormer to find a stable uh, web host after Unite the Right and how they'd been sort of kicked from place to place and was a little bit snarky. Like I compared them to wandering Jews. <laughs> and um I also like kind of wrote about my frustration about the complicity of like tech bros in facilitating fascist speech. Mm. And of course, they noticed, mm-hmm. and they noticed, you know, who I was, the sort of fat Jewish woman commenting on them. And so they kind of wrote about me in, like, shall we say, very, like, holocaust and gross ways. So That was the first time I came under that microscope. And then the second was, like, I had this sort of weird scandal. I was a fact checker at the New Yorker at the time. And like, there was sort of this widely discussed photo uh, that was sort of going around that, that ICE immigration and customs enforcement had posted of one of their agents who had a very prominent sort of cross shaped tattoo on his elbow. And I, like a lot of other people was like, is that an iron cross (laughs) on, on that guy's elbow? I wasn't the first to mention it. I didn't say anything really explicit. I just like posted a photo of the, of what they'd posted, and then kind of a photo of an iron cross, and then deleted my tweet fifteen minutes later, and hmm. kind of wrote like wrote, well, you know, some people are saying it's a Maltese cross. Deleting my tweet in interest of not spreading misinformation, but nonetheless, uh, ICE kind of seized on me as the generator of this rumor, which is not true, and like put out this statement on Twitter to its like millions of followers demanding that I apologize and that the New Yorker apologize. And I worked with Ken Klippenstein to sue ICE under FOIA and we like very conclusively discovered that they like wouldn't respond to journalists about they, they were sort of panicky at first, like, oh is this is this agent? does he have an iron cross tattoo? Like what's up with that? And Mm -hmm. kind of wouldn't respond to journalists who asked like, what do you say to the fact that she says you lied and, and uh, accused her of starting this rumor when she didn't anyway. uh, That's, uh, but it became this big scandal and like drove kind of right-wing media into this feeding frenzy. It was on like Fox news and everywhere. And then of course the far right, like for whom I had already been sort of a target of opprobrium really feasted on it um it got really excited it was like very culture wars e like here's this snooty journalist from new york anyway it was horrible and i resigned my job because i felt really bad about the whole thing and then i was like fuck you i'm gonna write a book (laughs) (laughs) fuck yeah it was a really horrible week like I that was my first experience of kind of the way the right wing media apparatus can just like go after I mean I was it's it's hard to overstate like how low level an editorial employee I was like I'd written a couple of bar reviews for the magazine but like I was a, a fact checker and like but it's like you know elitist journalist blah 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 <laughs> and so i just became like i watched the story sort of go from the national review to the daily stormer in the course of one week and like wow. Jesus. it was very traumatic and like very shitty to be under this like crazy national spotlight for this like pretty minor mistake I'm accused of trying to ruin a man's life that like i didn't name and like I deleted my tweet like almost immediately like it was just so bizarre and so that that's sort of my joker origin story um was like getting all this sort of really deranged hate mail and like a lot of it was anti-semitic and misogynistic and um you know losing one possibility set of possibilities for for my career and then moving in and making something else I kind of Decided to double down on the whole looking, looking, (laughs) like have, like finding that abyss gazing at me. I, I decided to double down and gaze back as hard as I could.
3: Hell yeah.
4: You know, some standouts to me, were you talking honestly about just the anger and how much it affected you? And I think that's such a real thing. And it's not just something that's like, we need to study, uh, you know, as as people coming into this, but as people that are maintaining mental health care as they approach this work. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can kind of talk more about the vitriol that you've gotten as a Jewish woman. And like, just wondering if you can talk about like how you started navigating that and and how you still kind of deal with it.
2: Yeah, I think the the mental health toll of anti-fascist work is really, really real. And I think there are different kinds there are different aspects to it I mean I'm not a street operative like I um I'm like an agoraphobe who really tends to have panic attacks in public at the best of times and like nobody needs like like someone having a panic attack in the middle of a protest so it's just like not very useful so I find my use you know as a communicator and also just like there are many many uh, ways you can do anti-fascist work, uh, online. Um, and, and certainly, like, many people in Portland have, you know, been candid and thoughtful talking about the trauma of kind of facing down the far right on the street. Um, and there, but there's a different kind of trauma that comes from kind of continually exposing yourself to hate propaganda. Mm -hmm. Um, comes in the sense of sort of one aspect to it or like something I was thinking about recently so like I had been working on this project monitoring militias which like to an extent I'm 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 still working on um, like a, a lesser extent and I you know worked for kind of three weeks straight uh, very long days and then I was like I need a day off and, and really really fully off And when I took a day off, I felt this sort of melting away of what I realized was this sense of crouched hypervigilance that I'd been carrying around with me. Like, the sense of if I, you know, look away for a minute, uh, what, you know, I'll miss something crucial and maybe life-saving, you know, if I... or you know or I, I have to listen to every hateful word that's being said and for the book i spent months in like dozens of you know neo nazi telegram chats like reading them every day it was just like part of my routine was like reading you know the daily stormer reading all these neo nazi hate sites like infostormer and 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 stormfront and and various other derivatives of der stürmer um and and then all these telegram chats i'm like it really does weigh on you it makes you feel like you like my life became smaller i became more afraid uh i felt like i was sort of living in a bell jar sort of cut off from from the good things of this world by the weight of all that hate and I think recognizing it and talking about it, you know, I think that that it's important to to not have a culture as there so often is in journalism. Uh, and I'm not sure if the same applies to anti-fascist work, but I think that sometimes there can be a culture of machismo hmm. kind of, I'm so tough. This doesn't affect me. You know, I can infiltrate and surveil and and be kind of, really effective and none of this touches me and I think you know if you're a thinking and sensitive person and you you know especially someone with with any kind of personal connection like me being Jewish and all constantly reading about you know genocidal violent propaganda sometimes directed against your ethnic group or in my case occasionally against like me as an individual uh you know it can't really fuck you up and I, I think it behooves us to be honest about the ways this kind of work can leave scars so that we can Hmm. be as tender as we need to be with one another and ourselves.
4: God, I super appreciate those sentiments and like how important that is.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I agree because after the whole milkshake debacle, I was kind of at the like person getting all of our phone calls and emails. And so I saw some of that same level of vitriol and there is a very 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 dark place that one could go if you are not well supported
2: oh yeah i mean it's like the roof is torn off your life Mm -hmm. like you become the target of all these malevolent thoughts and fantasies it's a really like and i've talked a lot of women specifically through kind of the experience of being in the eye of that kind of storm and kind of how to protect their information, how to stop being doxxed, and also just emotionally how to survive it, how to prepare for, like, how your work will react and stuff. And it's a really unfortunate expertise to have, but I'm never going to withhold it from anyone. It's just, like, like, welcome to this horrible club where, like, fucking you're going to wind up, like, with tucker carlson like mispronouncing your name for like just utterly stupid and deranged reasons um yeah
4: i appreciate you talking about that machismo and like what the sort of perception of anti-fascism is because like i think you hit on what is like the most difficult and the most like you know emotional labor intensive aspect of it is like you know diving into that darkness and exposing yourself to that research especially when you're someone who is being targeted by those communities and i just really appreciate your courage doing that and being able to like speak to that so powerfully and introduce people to like the realities of that in terms of getting interested in in that work yeah just super appreciate it well i
2: didn't want to kind of like tell people like yeah this is like totally mental <laughs> like this isn't going to fuck you up at all because that would be unfair I don't think that like I do end with an exhortation for people to become anti fascists in their lives and communities and I I think that's you know the more of us there are the more we can support one another Um, I just think it's important to go in kind of knowing like this can fuck you up be careful mm-hmm. like with yourself take breaks when you can that are real breaks you know because I I've seen people become sort of uh changed by their anger you know and to a degree I felt myself being changed by my anger into someone who had kind of imbibed so much resentment that I became like a darker person during the writing of the book, and and I've recovered from that somewhat, and um, you know, but but part of that was just like not reading neo-Nazi chats for like eight to ten hours a day, <laughs> like it, that that can really fuck your mind up, and and I think it's important that there's space in the movement for people to say like I'm not doing okay i need you to look at my mentions today i need you to you know like when i wound up on this really awful kiwi like a uh, like cyberbullying hub called kiwi farms like they dox my parents they dox, dox my Whole family, like I made a friend read the thread, the like nine to twelve page thread. You know, it was like dissecting pictures of me, blah, 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 very anti Semitic. I made someone else read it because I was like I at first, because I was like, I can't I need to know whether there's a threat here, but I can't read this right now. And like I think that I'm lucky that I have friends that I have friends who are willing to do that, but I think we need to be honest with each other about the emotional toll this work can take. Otherwise we wind up sublimating our anger and, and using it against each other.
1: Mm -hmm. Hmm. I think um, one of the things about being an anti-fascist to put yourself at risk, but then also being a really public um, person, like a journalist adds a different element um, as well. Uh, And it, it's interesting because we um, are doing, the, you know, these episodes talking about uh, pseudo-journalist Andy No, who did actually put a lot of journalists in danger and got a lot of people harassed based on, you know, his sharing of, like, the various, like, Antifa journalist lists and whatnot, and... So it's it's interesting because on the one hand, there is public figures that are getting this. And then he also shares these mug shots where it's, you know, private individuals and they're also being targeted. And so I think for people that are already in the public eye, I wonder if it's a different experience in terms of like what safeguards you already have in place versus people who have never done that. And I love that you've talked to people to talk them through this, because I think that that kind of, um, even though it's a sad place to have that expertise, I think that that kind of like community support and like uh, rallying the troops and uh, I'm trying to think of a metaphor that's not the one that's popping in my head that's, I don't want to use, but um, you know, kind of like everybody kind of coming around and, and holding those people is something that we have as like individuals, but when it's somebody who's in the public eye, I feel like you maybe don't have that same sorry 24 hours with no sleep my brain stops oh no well,
2: that's fine i think i get where you're where mm-hmm. you're going you know just just that uh i i i think yeah i mean to be already in the public eye is sort of an advantage in that i don't i don't operate pseudonymously but i also my primary methods are like you know really communication and then and, and sort of commentary and, and wall comes and you know, every movement needs this propagandist. So, you know, <laughs> if you call me an an antifa propagandist, I'm not gonna dispute that in the least and would would claim that proudly. <laughs> um but oh, it's yeah. different than being an operative, you know, uh and and I would never begrudge, you know, in, and knowing the ferocity of the foe, I would never begrudge anyone operating pseudonymously. Um You know, but yeah, I mean, so Andy Ngo is just absolutely a menace. I really um, loathe that guy. And and he tweeted to his like 400,000 followers that I am shaped like a pigeon. Oh my God. Or like whatever. I mean, pigeons are fine. They're scrappy survivors. In New York, they're sort of gangster birds. So in the in the book i i call i actually talk about andy Nio a bit
1: mm-hmm.
2: i call him a far-right propagandist um i said he he rose to prominence castigating the anti-fascist movement and writing for the canadian racist pub- publication colette i think i also call him oh yeah i call him fascism adjacent fake wad andy um, <laughs> not and that's published in in a book so that's it. my that's my take on the man. He's <laughs> he's truly execrable and one thing that I noticed in my exhaustive survey of hate sites. The way hate sites work, a big part of the way they work is like they'll they'll have like black crime, immigrant crime, jewish crime, or in the case of incels like crimes by women uh to sort of prove over and over again and inflame the audience and prove over and over again that your out group that you hate is uh, inferior right so uh, Andy Nyo's Twitter feed kind of operates like a hate site against the left I mean that's really how I see it like that's to me the most like to me that's how I would describe his feed as like kind of a means to to throw red meat to his often very violent uh, followers and, and to throw loathing of the left at them and and his focus on uh, trans and queer individuals uh, is so obvious and so hateful and um, he really does put people in danger and uh, I stand by the fascism adjacent dickwad description (laughs) oh that one time you wrote that op-ed about like England's like turning Muslim and (laughs) like
1: Mm -hmm. and like and they interviewed me and I said that I didn't think he was a journalist and the interviewer from the Wall Street Journal like argued with me about it. Well,
2: you know, they're <laughs> dumb. I don't know. Uh,
1: <laughs> like
2: I think especially their op-ed page is like a particularly sort of grim <laughs> place. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, although there are some good reporters there. I think for me in general uh, they're sort of to me I find this sort of faux objectivity that's really the the flavor of, of political commentary in in the US, this idea of like moral toddlerism, kind of waking up each day as if you have are discovering the world anew, uh, and like cannot tell right from wrong at gunpoint. Uh, is pretty like it's been destructive throughout the trump era certainly it's you know wildly unfair to female and minority journalists who have to and and, you know and queer journalists who you know have to write about phenomena that directly threaten their lives you know and well-being under this facade of neutrality it like favors white male journalists as the default and uh Mm -hmm. On the far right beat, there is a preponderance of white male journalists, some of whom, not all of whom, there are many, like, admirable journalists on the beat, but some treat it as sort of a, an object of perennial f- fascination and curiosity, um, kind of like a plaything subculture to write about the details of, like, a gossip sheet, and that's not really how I see it. I mean, of course, there are things I find totally fascinating and i will like go off on wild tangents like learning all the details about like you know separatist movements or sovereign citizens or like norse (laughs) god worship among white nationalists but but i think you have to retain a moral center and um you know it's a controversial mode of practice it uh definitely sometimes blurs the line between activism and journalism but the one thing I can say is that I do have a commitment to the the truth um and I think there there should be just as there's almost infinite space for unapologetically right-wing journalists there should be space for unapologetically left-wing journalists who approach things truthfully but from a left perspective but unfortunately there's vanishingly little space and even less money for journalists with that perspective to kind of flourish in our current denuded journalistic landscape. So that's, that's my take on that.
1: (laughs) Well, kind of in a similar vein um, in your book, you talk about the like half-hearted attempt of like social media companies, for instance, to moderate content on things like telegram and discord. And how they do continue to platform outright neo-Nazis and the Proud Boys and all of these other groups, even though they get publicly called out for it. Um, And so it's an interesting contrast you you just said about not being able to like have a platform for the people who are openly leftist journalists, and yet we still have the other entities that happily platform their messaging.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's patently obvious that not just Telegram and Discord. I mean, Telegram, like, I, I mean, they certainly allow a lot of crazy, like, terrorist shit on their platform. But Telegram comes from, like, Russia and, like, pretty courageously defending Russian dissidents against the state. So it's, like, a little more complicated to me. When you have, like, American companies like Facebook and Twitter, you know, and YouTube that are, like, more mainstream, more corporate their abdication is so uh, extraordinary and so inexcusable. Like they're such bad actors in this space. And like <laughs> there was a feature in Wired called Facebook is a doomsday machine. Kind of just like went into detail about how it's it's not really a company so much as like literally just like an engine to destroy humanity. And they've 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 tipped their their hands so heavily, you know, in favor of of the right um just over and over and over again these social media companies have you know and particularly facebook has so much money like more money than fucking god and yet they treat content moderation like it's this you know this afterthought and that's i mean to me at this point it goes far beyond anything that be could be construed innocently it is not Mm -hmm. benign neglect or even just simple neglect it's it's an active collaboration and uh, i really think they're Mm -hmm. they're forces for for evil and 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 you know and for far endless ceaseless far-right recruitment and conspiracy which is maybe synonyms but yeah
4: (laughs) Yeah, so uh, one thing I really appreciated, especially as like a contrast to the very understandable rage about like doing this kind of like research work that you've been doing with culture warlords is like, I laughed my ass up about the like white date expose. And like you you quoted, uh, sorry, this is just too great. Uh, you, you called white date a car crash between Nicholas Sparks and Mein Kampf. Um, and I just wanted to like, I don't know, give space for the way that you found a way to create like humor and like a, a different tone with all of this really heavy work. So I was just wondering if you could maybe talk about, uh, that, that detour.
2: Yeah. White date was so funny and like horrible. I mean, the way I decided to catfish on white which is this all white, like racist dating site. Um, i'd found it through like various racist blog posts that the founder had made kind of being like shouldn't we breed human beings like animals join us on white date um but like looking at the site they had this like mini flyer to try and attract women because they had like no women on the site and it was like you were supposed to hand a woman this flyer that said like our survival, you look like one of us. Our survival is as important as the survival of the Siberian tiger. Join us on my, oh my date. App. <laughs> like, like, okay, oh my whatever. Um, so, the, the Siberian tigers that I kind of matched with in, in, under this disguise were um, maybe not like necessarily all panther esque. Uh, uh, expressions of the pinnacle of the human form, but uh, neither am I. But you know, whatever. Um, I, I'm not comparing myself to a tiger. Um, it was just very funny. It was so easy. It was like plucking fish out of a barrel. Just to talk, to, get people to open up and be like, "So, what? What you doing on a white supremacist dating site? Uh, what brings you here? What's your ideal white wife like?" I think you know one of the things that is always a a funny line for me is like a lot of the time like fascists are really like like dumb and in funny ways like (laughs) i mean like the proud boys like breakfast cereal initiation ritual (laughs) like all the times that like they they're so self-serious and and like just say really stupid things and you want to acknowledge how goofy they are with while also acknowledging that they pose A real danger and like are kind of this constant engine of stochastic terror so it's to me it's like a delicate line to tread but i think you have to find like some humor in all of it like the guy who was like you know i can't wait to live a life with you know with you and with with keeping the marxists and you know darkies away from our children by the way i only eat beef (laughs) and eggs (laughs) and pineapple for the can yeah or like several amateur blacksmiths stuff like that i don't know got goofy
1: (laughs) it just it seems like something that would be a satire and a parody if it wasn't real but then it is real and it's one of those things where you laugh but then there's that dark underbelly
2: yeah, it was a ridiculous experience. And also whitedate.net is still around and if you want a catfish on it, you absolutely can. Um <laughs> it's really easy. They've like tightened their security protocol after the book, they tightened their security protocol and banned my account. Um and wrote like this Jewish woman has like like fooled innocent white men. <laughs> I'm like um, you absolute suckers. Um, But their new security Mm -hmm. protocol is they'll just like write you an email directly. Um, Like the founder will. And and you can just use a fake email and be like, yeah, I'm real. You can still sign up to Catfish on whitedate.net. And I highly recommend people do. Both for the utility (laughs) of doing so in terms of getting doxes and also just to fuck with racist heads. Um...
3: (laughs) Oh yeah, I I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I'm definitely yeah. gonna have to give that a shot. Um so something I think that anti-fascists and anti-capitalists are very aware of at this point is that a lot of these far-right groups that you've researched are very, very good at capturing what a lot of people used to consider to be more leftist grievances, like, you know, feelings of alienation and atomization, dissatisfaction with Neoliberal economics and capitalism and, and, and all that, and then they they spin them into these bizarre frameworks where it just so happens that every single solution ends with white male hegemony. So, like, on the one hand, it makes sense that alienated young men would be drawn to a politics that centers and appeals to their sense of powerlessness and, and you know, promises them a, a hero's journey to absolute power but like not every young man or person whose ideology shopping settles on racist far-right politics so like do you have any sense of what it is that makes the red pill like so much more appealing to some people than say like becoming a really annoying tanky or an anarchist like is it as simple as the power appeal or are they offering something that we're not really thinking about i think
2: like it's an interesting question and like first of all, there are people who've crossed, you know, those boundaries, like famously uh, Jason Kessler, the organizer of Unite the Right, was uh, was, you know, part of the Occupy movement. Um, you know, there are people who uh, are just, like, kind of rootlessly seeking belonging an ideology, you know, and will find it whenever ideology comes along. I do think um, maybe there's a certain like one of the big ways that uh white supremacist ideology appeals to p- people is by basically giving them permitted classes of people to take out their rage on like harassment is a cornerstone of their tactics and their propaganda, um you know, both physical assault and uh, certainly digital harassment you know, like often starting with you can harass feminists because they ruined, you know, ghostbusters or whatever and then moving to like but also Jews and black people are the reason why you feel like shit and you should harass them and like you know trans and queer people too or degenerate or whatever. So um I think the type of person who's maybe drawn to that ideology is like seeking an outlet not just for meaning and not just to partake in in a cause that's larger than themselves although i think the stories that white nationalism tells about itself about being the saviors of the race and you know by by extension of humanity uh are really important but like also it's kind of a license to hurt people and and the kind of personality that's drawn to that has maybe been looking for an outlet for a big rage you know, that's kind of what I think stands out as the permission that white nationalism gives you is like, you know, to attack degenerates and race enemies, right, and to to, to to inflict harm. And and there are certain people for whom the idea of inflicting harm is very attractive.
4: So I we just have one last question to wrap up, although we wish we had an hour more with you because, like, we just so appreciate your time and perspective. But Effie, did you want to? close us out with that
1: uh as we were talking about this stuff does get pretty heavy and we talk a lot about a a lot of heavy stuff and we do all need a little bit more levity in our lives so fuck nazis and the grifters that align themselves with them so why don't we close out by having you talk about some of the things that like does bring you joy in these times like how's moby dick (laughs) energy going oh well it's
2: i mean i just like have Mm. i think the era of corona has like corresponded with a very short attention span for me and so it's like if i have a couple pieces due in a week like I, it will i will like skip Moby chick energy but I, I do love whenever i get the chance to spend an hour talking about melville it's like the most delightful thing <laughs> because i i love whales um, and like gay whalemen um, <laughs> squeezing sperm together on the decks of a doomed ship. It's my favorite. Um, <laughs> there I also made... mean Yeah! I mean aren't we all just gay whalemen squeezing sperm on the decks of a doomed <laughs> ship together. Um, <laughs> um, I uh, I made a really nice carrot Ginger miso chicken soup tonight Mm. for my family. Soup, literally, soup for my family. (laughs) Soup for your family. I know, like, Trump is an evil monster, but some of the shit he said was, like, so unintentionally funny. Yes. You can't throw a brick, it's too heavy. (laughs) That will live rent free in my mind forever, and I literally can't make soup without thinking about soup for my family. Yeah. But I do love cooking, and it's a major source of joy for me. Just because it's like the ultimate love language—just like making Ugh. something hot and warm to be appreciated. Especially tonight because it's snowing in New York. Ooh, um, oh, nice! Thank you so much for having oh, me on. Yeah. You guys are the real OGs, and um, oh, happy to come on whenever. Oh. And um, big love to Portland. Thank you, which so. has. Suffered and struggled and been an inspiration for so many, oh. and um, really, I'm sending big love oh. to the Rose City from from over here.
4: We super appreciate you and your work. Thank you for everything that you do.
2: Yeah, take care, and um, you know, I'm raising
1: m- my milkshake to you. <laughs>
4: <Yes>. <laughs> Cheers, comrade. okay.
1: Cheers, comrades! Cheers, comrades! Thank you so much for listening to Concrete Milkshake. Our intro and outro music is The Movement by Mike Crenshaw, who is a local hip-hop artist from Portland, Oregon, and a local treasure. He's also been recently doing a podcast called It Did Happen Here, which is amazing and definitely worth checking out. You can find all of his information at mikecrenshaw.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.
0: Mental illness quite resilient Fight with wit and right is real shit volatility Low civility, don't let vulnerability Lower your agility This moment is pivotal critical our opponent is intentional brutally criminal to be truthful our response has been useful and pitiful community defense happens when we control the city though perversity thirstily worshiping emergencies a constant state of urgency crisis creates currency mass murder and the mayhem massacres and strife manufacturing the chaos the fascist racist right merchants peddle weaponry and sell it to all sides no guarantee with no tranquility after we all die hostility and anger killing me They commit atrocities Possible deniability We must achieve the impossible Believe in our abilities I'ma look to you and me Not Hollywood or Hillary Politicians and police Can't keep in bourgeoisie Liberation's closer than you think But y'all ain't really feeling me It's time to think fast The movement Learn lessons from my past The movement Organize the class The movement Solidarity that lasts The movement About that. But what about the love? What about the good lord in the heavens up above? The heavens up above, they are inside of you Don't forget about the essence of the message tried and true And to the hell below, we have access to that too Depending on what you know, how you think and what you do I'm posted on the radius doing surveillance with my crew Through the phone and from the drone, they spy on me and you Oh, you think you cool? They spying on you, too I know you think I'm a fool, but they spying on you, too So what you gon' do? What we gon' do? What you gon' do? What we gon' do? It's time to think fast, the movement Learn lessons from my past, the movement Organize the class, the movement Solidarity at last, the movement It's time to think fast, the movement Lessons from my past, the movement Organize the class, the movement Solidarity at last, the movement Yo, they blasted on a park right before it got dark I saw the muzzle flash out the window, flying sparks Fuck the snitches and the narcs, debating about marks They aiming at our children, hit a baby in the heart Code of silence, I'm not promoting violence There's a science, self-sufficient, self-reliance Efficient and defiant leopard's lepers, lions, one of us gets hit, well, three of them are dying, self-control. Erosion of my soul, PTSD, test me, I won't give up before our goals. Protect our families, communities and homes, as to whether we find peace, well, that remains unknown. It's time to think fast, the movement, learn lessons from my past, the movement. Organize the class, The Movement Solidarity at last The Movement It's time to think fast The Movement Learn lessons from my past The Movement Organize the class, The Movement Solidarity at last The Movement Time to think fast The Movement Learn lessons from my past The Movement Organize the class, The Movement Solidarity at last, the movement It's time to think fast, the movement Learn lessons from my past, the movement Organize the class, the movement Solidarity at last, the movement